Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to get a chat about the Treaty of Waitangi, a monumentally important document when it comes to the history of Aotearoa New Zealand. And honestly, not just the history, but the present and the future of the nation too. The Treaty of Waitangi was, at its most basic, an agreement made in 1840 between representatives of the, of the British Crown and the, uh, the Rangatira, the chieftains of various Māori iwi, or tribal confederations, over the sovereignty of Aotearoa New Zealand. The reality of this treaty, however, far beyond that basic and very simplified summary, the reality of this treaty is so much more complicated, so much more involved. It's surrounded by so many issues, both back then and today. And there is just an enormous amount to talk about with this treaty, why it was written, how it was, was written, by whom it was written, and then the same again for why, how, and whom, and by whom it was signed. There are translation issues, conflicts of interest, lies and misrepresentations, and there are these overarching colonial issues that, that muddy the water even further. I cannot really stress enough just how complex this document is, uh, despite how short the treaty is in terms of its length as well, despite how seemingly simple its provisions are to read through. It is one of the most complicated, controversial and sensitive aspects of the history of Aotearoa New Zealand. And with that in mind, I'll uh, I'll say something similar to what I said last week well, as we got across the settlement of, uh, of Aotearoa New Zealand. Um, I'm not a Kiwi. Obvious, well, I say obviously, but then a, a lot of foreigners apparently have difficulty telling us apart, which just, I, they are, honestly, their ears painted on. We couldn't sound more different. Anyway, I'm not a Kiwi. Um, I don't have a first-hand experience of the issues this treaty has brought about. I don't have a first-hand understanding of Kiwi culture and society that obviously comes up with growing up there. Um, but again, I've done my best. As, a, as an ignorant Aussie on the other side of the Tasman, I've done my best. And if I've messed anything up in, uh, in getting across this very important and, once, once again, very sensitive area of Kiwi history, I really do apologise. I've... I've just had so many requests from Kiwi listeners to talk about the history, and specifically the treaty, the, the treaty itself. Um, alert listeners Alex, Alex Jansen, Matt Dingle, Andre Delamar, Greg Wilson, they've all written in to ask for an, uh, ask for an episode on the Treaty of Waitangi. And uh, with Waitangi Day coming up in just a couple of days from this episode, um, I, I thought now would uh, would be the best time. And, and of course, while we're, thank while we're in the business of thanking Kiwi listeners, Thanks once again go to extremely alert listener Jordan Coxhead who furnished me with many of the resources that I used to research this uh, this episode. Jordan, this uh, look honestly, mate, I couldn't have done it. Well, I could have done it without you, but it, been, it would have been a, a, a much harder slog than it was had you not sent me everything, uh, all of that stuff to read and watch and whatever else. So thanks very much, Jordo, and uh, thanks very much to all the Kiwis tuning in. Kia ora to everyone on the other side of the ditch. Um, especially those, if this is your first episode, welcome, by all means, welcome. Uh, although I do recommend having a listen to last week's episode before this one, as it'll, uh, as it'll better set the stage for, uh, for what we're going to chat about here. But look, if you're a Kiwi, if you're from any other part of the world, it really is great to have you along as we get stuck into a, a very important chapter of the history of Aotearoa New Zealand. Um, and as I say, more or less every week, a lot to get across here today, so we're not going to waste any more time. Let's get into the long and the complicated and the very important story of the Treaty of Waitangi. Here we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back 
to the 1830s, where we left our story last week. Again, be sure to get across if you want the fullest understanding of what's going on in this episode as well. In the 1830s, uh, European interests, principally British, but not, not exclusively, as we'll see, uh, European interests were, were firmly established in Aotearoa. Uh, however, the indigenous Māori population still held, held power uh, practically and politically. This was despite a huge drop in population numbers, thanks to the diseases and the muskets that Europeans had brought to New Zealand. Uh, the Europeans killed Māori with diseases, while the Māori killed each other with muskets. Um, there were a few small trading posts and whaling or sealing stations dotted along the uh, the coast of Aotearoa, but but aside from a a single one single settlement way up in the north of the North Island called Russell, which was the first permanent European settlement on Aotearoa. Overwhelmingly, most inhabitants across both islands are, are Māori at this stage. And that's not to say that they didn't suffer mistreatment at the hands of the, uh, of the, of, of the Pākehā um, minority, European, Pākehā being Europeans who had come to New Zealand to settle down for good, because when Māori traded with Pākehā, they were given much worse prices for their goods. They were convinced to sell land for far less than it was worth. Uh, and on top of all of this, there's the ongoing erosion of their culture, through the unrelenting missionaries that streamed into Aotearoa to, you know, quote-unquote, civilise them. While, uh, while Māori Rangatira, the chieftains, still held a huge amount of authority and influence, uh, it was slowly but steadily being chipped away by Pākehā. And in the 1830s specifically, this became uh, no less steady, but a fair bit less slow. And so we begin our story this week specifically in 1832, when the British deployed a man named James Busby to New Zealand in order to deal with some of the issues that were emerging there. Namely, Busby was sent over to rein in the excesses of the Pākehā in New Zealand, specifically the drunken and lawless behaviour of the inhabitants of Russell. Pākehā in places like Russell and elsewhere besides, they weren't doing much to engender good relations between the British and the Māori, so Busby's job was to just calm everything down, get everyone to chill out a little bit, and try to have people just get along with each other. However, Busby wasn't given much in the way of real power to actually carry out the orders he'd been given. He couldn't raise or command troops. He couldn't make laws. All he could really do, honestly, was just ask nicely, which did not prove to be a hugely effective technique in bringing Pākehā back in line. It didn't do much to assuage the concerns of Māori Rangatira, who didn't appreciate the disrespect and the mistreatment they received from the Pākehā. And so things weren't looking good for Busby. And in 1835, therefore, a couple of years after he arrived, Busby took a different tack. He contacted a large number of North Island Rangatira, and he encouraged them to sign, you won't believe this, a Declaration of Independence. Now, this sounds like a very strange move. Surely Busby, as a as an officer of the British Crown, he wouldn't do anything that would decrease British power in Aotearoa. But this is what he did, nonetheless. And there's a reason for this, right? While the Declaration did indeed declare New Zealand to be independent, um, and that sovereignty lay with the hereditary chiefs that signed the document itself, the Declaration also formally requested the protection of the British Crown. And with this declaration, a short-lived tribal confederation known as the United Tribes of New Zealand was not only established, but also recognised. British King William IV, he offered official recognition to the United Tribes that a flag and everything, so pretty legitimate, right? Now, generally speaking, as I said last week, Māori aren't monolithic. They had and still have very diverse views and values and cultures. But generally speaking, the Māori 
at this stage in history, had a pretty positive opinion of the British, right? They respected the British. Uh, they respected the power of their empire. They respected the British were a seafaring people, you know, Britannia ruling the waves as it did. And in fact, in 1831, uh, Māori Rangatira had actually written a letter to King William seeking his friendship and guardianship uh, in the face of other external threats to Aotearoa, and specifically the French, who the Māori didn't like very much at all, with good reason too, because uh, in, 770, in 1772, the French actually were responsible for a massacre that saw around 250 Māori killed, and the Māori had long memories. They did not; they were not in any position of readiness to forgive for, to forgive the French for this. So, in truth, the Rangatira sending this declaration ending up ended up serving many many purposes. While it did assert Māori authority over their lands, it declared that they and only they had the right to make laws. Right? It also did in in its own way begin to unravel some of the authority that the Māori had over Aotearoa. Busby didn't have the power to make laws to to govern the Pākehā, but this declaration made it so that, on paper at least, the Māori did, especially when the king acknowledged it. So now the Rangatira, they could make laws to to deal with these lawless Pākehā in Russell and, and wherever else they were. Now, Busby, not being able to do this himself, he now attempted to bring the Pākehā under control using the authority of the Māori Rangatira, and this just didn't work. It, it really didn't work. But you can still see why Busby attempted it, right? He was attempting to legitimize the, the I say the, a system of authority in, in Aotearoa, whatever that system was, whether it came from the British Crown or the, uh, or the tribal leaders of the, of the United Tribes. He just wanted some way to get people to just calm down and, and, and tell them what to do under some sort of regulated legal system. So this was this was one of the reasons that this uh, Declaration of Independence was encouraged by uh, by Busby. But there are a couple of other reasons I want to talk to you about that uh, perhaps aren't as important, right? Um, but also uh, played into the, uh, the 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 reason this declaration came uh, came into came into effect, right? Came into being. As ridiculous as this sounds, right? This is a real reason. The, the Declaration of Independence and the fact that the, uh, the Māori uh, rangatira picked a, a flag for their, uh, for their confederation, it meant that Kiwi vessels finally had a legitimate flag to fly as they sailed. And this was a problem, or this was a solution to a problem, I should say, because a Kiwi merchant ship uh, had been seized when visiting Sydney without a flag. New Zealand wasn't officially a colony. It didn't have a flag. Ships built and based in New Zealand... They sailed flagless, which was in violation of British maritime law, going to get you in trouble if you sail into Port Jackson, right? So now that the United Tribes had, a, had an officially recognised flag, their declaration had gone to, to, to King William. He'd said, yep, absolutely, love the flag, looks great, fantastic, whack it on your ships, right? Their ships could now fly this flag and sail unimpeded. This, this seems a bit silly, but even this small step, just getting a flag, was an important step, nonetheless, on New Zealand's path to internationally recognised statehood. And finally, there's, there's one, one last thing that I want to talk to you about when it comes to this declaration here that, uh, that's quite separate from all the other stuff we've talked about so far, but um, almost acts as foreshadowing, right, for an issue that will uh, be very relevant when it comes to the Treaty of Waitangi. And I want, to, I want you to keep it in mind because one of the reasons I'm talking about it here is to illustrate the point that the, the issues that the Treaty of Waitangi was attempting to address, they didn't just crop up, crop up out of nowhere, right? These are issues that were longstanding, they were not going anywhere and they needed to be addressed. And the the fact that the Declaration of Independence didn't really didn't really address or solve this issue doesn't take away from the fact that it 
at least attempted to or was uh, involved in, in, in this issue in some way. And, th- and this issue is the fact that other people, other, other great powers, namely the French, were starting to sniff around in Aotearoa, in New Zealand, right, and starting to make overtures that they too desired to colonise it. Now, this was something that just, it wasn't just concerning to Busby, it was concerning to anyone and everyone who was it's, to seeking to protect British interests in the region, um, including the Māori, right? The, the Māori, as I just mentioned, they didn't like the French at all, they definitely preferred the British. This Declaration of Independence was a very, very minor obstacle, extremely minor, almost an irrelevant obstacle, but an obstacle nonetheless to the French in their attempts to muscle in on Aotearoa. Because if the United Tribes had diplomatic recognition from the British Crown to bolster their legitimacy, the French couldn't rely on some of the tried-and-true arguments that colonising nations used to seize new lands. The land already belonged to someone now after its recognition as being part of a British protectorate, whereas before, you know, according to the French, it didn't belong to anyone. Certainly certainly not the Māori who had lived there for, for centuries. No, no, no. So if all of this sounds weird and confusing, you know, stuff about flags and the recognition of ownership of land, all that sort of stuff, if it sounds weird and confusing, it is because, largely speaking, it is weird and confusing to us today. But these were the political rules of the colonial era. Indigenous sovereignty could be freely ignored until it was backed up by European authority, that is. And this is something that Busby was able to engineer with the Declaration of Independence. Honestly, I might be overstating the importance of this de- of this declaration. I'm not 100% sure. Um, it doesn't seem to occupy a hugely lofty position in Kiwi history, which, which surprises me given its political implications both at the time and today. But all the same, I wanted to bring it up as uh, as a bit of a, as a bit of a prelude, right, to the Treaty of Waitangi, because you will see um, the, I guess, the way the political winds were blowing and what went into the creation, the very rushed creation, as you'll see, of the Treaty of Waitangi, some of the uh, the issues and problems it was attempting to address. But now we can move on to what came after this declaration, and uh, if the Declaration of Independence as I say, doesn't really occupy a hugely lofty lofty position in Kiwi history. The Treaty of Waitangi certainly does. It is one of the most, if not the most important uh, historical documents when it comes to the history of Aotearoa New Zealand. And uh, we are going to be here for quite a while to discuss it. It's uh, it's the lead up, the the, the composition, the, the signing and the consequences of this treaty. So strap yourselves in because there's a lot for us to talk about here. The British had avoided the official colonisation of New Zealand for years and years and years, a lot longer than you might think, actually, based on what we've talked about so far. Because technically speaking, right, and there are some, there are going to be some Kiwis who don't like this, technically speaking, New Zealand was first colonised on paper with the establishment of New South Wales in 1788. The founding of the New South Wales colony included, quote, all the islands adjacent in the Pacific Ocean, right, to a latitude and longitude that did in fact include Aotearoa. So, as far as the British were concerned from 1788, it was much as it was as much a part of the British Empire as Australia was. And it does mean that if you want to be really technical and I guess rely on a bunch of really, uh, you know, less than ideal imperialist arguments about the origin of and, and, and the founding of and the establishment of nations new zealand was once part of australia so yeah stick that in your pipe and smoke it i guess kiwis i'm not as 
I, even from the beginning of that sentence to the end of that, I feel a little less triumphant about uh, about having said it. So <clears throat> maybe uh, maybe shouldn't have uh, walked down that particular path. Anyway, as I say, the British were not that enthusiastic about the actual colonization of, uh, of, uh, of Aotearoa. They were happy to paint the map, their color, of course. Like they were happy to say that it was part of their empire, kind of. But even then, they didn't really... Uh, pursue this new possession that they'd claimed with the same vigour that they did, for instance, Australia, right? On on several occasions in the early 19th century, uh, Britain sort of actually distanced itself from uh, New Zealand. It openly stated that New Zealand was not one of uh, the British dominions. But their hand ultimately was kind of forced in the end, because even if Britain wasn't racing to send settlers and colonists to uh, their imperial possession, uh, of New Zealand, more and more Pakia was settling in Aotearoa all the same. And as British and political economic influence took hold, as Maori and British affairs became further, further entangled, the British were kind of forced forced to face the political crisis that loomed on the horizon in New Zealand. It didn't really seem like they were that keen to, to be honest. It looked like they were kind of happy to just live and let live when it came to whatever was happening in New Zealand. For decades, they hadn't really had to do anything in relation to Aotearoa. They'd just been able to let it be, let it sort itself out. Not much going on there. Whalers, sealers, whatever. Useful bit of food for the convicts over in Sydney every now and again, so no worries. But by the time we get into the 1830s, there are other interested parties that are starting to think about sticking their snoots into Kiwi business. And this is why I was talking about the French before, because... The thought of the French moving in on Aotearoa is completely unacceptable to the British. As you can imagine, they're absolutely not about to let the French establish themselves in New Zealand and get involved in another Pacific power struggle with their hated foes. However, it wasn't just the French. Given the general lack of British interest in an official colonisation project in Aotearoa, an enterprising group called the New Zealand Company started to think about making taking matters into their own hands. Under the leadership of a, um, <clears throat> how can I diplomatically describe this fellow, a very interesting British fellow named uh, Edward Gibbon Wakefield, the New Zealand Company had a terrific idea, right? Buy a bunch of land cheaply off the Māori, sell it at greatly inf- inflated rates to wealthy British investors, and then use the money that they made off of the land sales to lure and transport hopeful members of British poor working classes to labour in the verdant, newly sold fields of Aotearoa. And with that, you've established not only a new landowning class in New Zealand, you've also provided them with a working class ready to go, and you've disempowered and disenfranchised those pesky natives as a little bonus, and best of all, while doing all of this, you've lined your pockets too. As cunning and clever a plan as it was morally reprehensible, and on the face of it, one that looked like it had a pretty bloody good chance of succeeding. And this was a problem for the British. This was another spur to their flank. Because forget about the French, right? The the French move in, that's terrible. The British don't want that. That doesn't take too much explanation. However, the New Zealand company, if they were to move forward with this essentially privatised colonisation of New Zealand, the British might end up with another East India Company situation on their hands. They don't want this. They don't want unregulated, privatised colonisation of this uh, of this so-called British possession. And so they have to start thinking about moving faster than the New Zealand Company to establish official colonial sovereignty over their claim possession in Aotearoa. And that 
was what caused the Treaty of Waitangi to come into being in the way that it did. With the threat of both the French moving in on Aotearoa and the New Zealand Company's dreams of, again, privatised colonisation, the British decided to try to nip this whole thing in the bud by beginning their own official colonisation process. And this colonisation process begins with, as I say, the establishment of sovereignty. In the late 1830s, in 1838 specifically, the British Parliament investigated the best way forward to secure British interests in Aotearoa. In 1839, a plan was drawn up to formally incorporate New Zealand into the British Empire once and for all, and this was to be done by a bloke named Captain William Hobson, who was deployed to New Zealand with specific instructions. He was to negotiate the transfer of sovereignty from the Māori to the British Crown. Furthermore, he was instructed to do this with the full understanding and acceptance of the Māori rangatira, the chieftains themselves. So, on paper at least, it seemed like the British were looking to play fair and annex Aotearoa with its people's willing consent. Hobson's instructions were very clear. He was told to treat with the Aborigines of New Zealand for the recognition of Her Majesty's sovereign authority over the whole or any part of those islands which they may be willing to place under Her Majesty's dominion. It's Her Majesty now. William IV is dead, has been since 1837. Now Victoria is on the throne. So, with these instructions, Hobson sails off from Britain to the other side of the world, to New Zealand, reminding himself of the three things that he's been instructed to do when he arrives. Number one, as we said, annex New Zealand with the consent of the Rangatira, both those of the United Tribes and all the others wherever possible. Two, he's there to assert British authority over the lands that were annexed and to ensure British ownership of and interests in those lands weren't undermined, particularly by the French and their colonial ambitions and, of course, the New Zealand Company. And thirdly, he was to set up a colonial government that would govern the new colony under the authority of the British Crown. Now, this was quite a task for Hobson, and as you'll see, not one that he was particularly prepared for. And that is a fact that is echoed throughout the history of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Hobson arrived in Aotearoa on the 29th of January, 1840, sailing into the Bay of Islands, right up in the northern part of the North Island, and landing in the town of Russell. Now, I mentioned Hobson wasn't prepared for the momentous task that was ahead of him, and when I tell you that he landed in New Zealand without a treaty prepared, without a draft, without even an outline drawn up, you will really start to get a sense of what I'm talking about. Because Hobson landed on the 29th of January, as I say, and the Treaty of Waitangi was signed on the 6th of February, which of course has become Waitangi Day. The empty-handed Hobson organised the annexation of an entire country and its people from scratch in a week. So no wonder the treaty caused more problems than it solved, problems that are still being unwound today. The thing was cobbled together overnight, literally, when it comes to one aspect, as I'll tell you. But there's a reason that Hobson was rushing to get the treaty written and signed, because hot on the heels of the official colonisation project from the British Crown was the New Zealand Company. They have already bought and sold land. They are already landing with settlers. They are already negotiating with Māori Rangatira over sovereignty. And the longer the British authorities don't settle the question of sovereignty in Aotearoa, the muddier the waters are going to become. So Hobson goes full steam ahead. He sits down himself to write the treaty with the help of his secretary, a fellow named James Freeman, and another bloke, James Busby, the fellow I mentioned before. Now, none of these three had a legal background. None of them had any expertise in treaty writing, but Hobson had his orders and he was damn well going to carry them out. And so the three of them raced to produce a treaty. 
They seem to have based it on other treaties that had been signed by the British in the past, writing and rewriting and changing and editing and adapting it over over and over again um, across the course of just three days. Three days! A nation's entire foundation rests upon a document written by three inexpert men across just three days. Now, as I alluded to before, the text of this treaty is not very long. It's not even 600 words long, and the thrust of it is quite simple. It is that the Māori rangatira would cede their sovereignty to the British crown while retaining certain rights. And, And what those rights exactly are is still something that is a source of political consternation to this very day in Aotearoa, New Zealand. It also promised uh, the the protection that comes with being British subjects to any Māori that signed it. But fundamentally, the treaty was an instrument designed to take sovereignty away from any rangatira who chose to sign it on behalf of the people they led. But it gets worse, if you'll believe it, because on the 4th of February, this finalised treaty was handed over to a missionary named Henry Williams and his son Edward Marsh Williams so they could translate it into te reo Māori, the, the Māori language. And they did this They did this overnight, and when I say that, I mean it both in a figurative and a literal sense. Not only was this a slapdash rush job uh, as they hurried to get it done as quickly as they could, it was also literally done overnight, in the small hours, by lantern light, father and son working feverishly through the night to get this document translated. And this led to the biggest and the most enduring issue with the Treaty of Waitangi. The English version and the Māori version do not say the same thing. Now, there's a lot to get into with this, and I'm not going to pretend I have a perfect understanding of the very complex and extremely nuanced aspects of this issue, but here is what I, I hope, at least, is an accurate recount of it all. When translating the treaty, the Williamses had trouble with certain words and phrases that didn't translate directly from English into Te Reo Māori. Now, I don't, I don't want to say they did their best because, well, you'll, you'll see why in a, in, in a little bit. But whatever the case was and whatever their motives were, the texts of the two treaties, once translated, didn't line up. And, and this was, in some instances, because it wasn't possible to provide a direct, literal translation from one language to another. And, and in fairness, Williams the Elder, he noted this. He informed Hobson that the treaty wasn't a perfect translation due to the nature of the respective languages involved. So it's not as if the British were blissfully unaware of this. But there are also other issues with the translation that the Williamses may or may not have been responsible for, which we'll, we'll, we'll talk about once we've actually talked about what the issues, what, what the translation issues were themselves, right? We'll talk about why they came about after we've talked about what they actually were. In the Te Reo Māori Treaty, the Māori were promised tino rangatiratanga, which loosely translates as self-government, uh, more literally means something along, along the lines of chiefly authority. And this phrase and its inclusion in the treaty has led it to become an extremely important and much, deba- much debated phrase in the history of Aotearoa. Even today, the exact English meaning of tino rangatiratanga is extremely controversial as as Māori and Pākehā unpack and address the legacy left behind by the Treaty of Waitangi. It can be translated as chiefly authority, but it's also sometimes translated as absolute sovereignty. And that is almost certainly not what the Williamses meant by it when they, when they put it in the treaty. So 
there's a level of ambiguity when it comes to this phrase, the way that the, the and, and the wording that the, uh, the the Williamses chose when they when they put it into the uh, into the treaty, that that already from the outset makes the exact meaning and the exact legal implications of the Treaty of Waitangi very very difficult to determine. But it's not just this phrase, Tinoranga Tiratanga, that uh, is the source of confusion and, and controversy when it comes to the Treaty of Waitangi. Because in addition, there has been another word that has been a centre point of debate about the, the Treaty of Waitangi, the word used to describe the role the British and their authority would play if the treaty was signed. And this word is Kawanatanga. And the thing about Kawanatanga is, not to put too fine a point on it, it wasn't really an actual Māori word. Now, look, I know that languages are dynamic and fluid. I know all words are, you know, made up, sure. But Kawanatanga was a word that had been used for the first time ever just five years before the Treaty of Waitangi was written when it appeared in the Declaration of Independence that I mentioned before. That was the first time this word Kawanatanga was ever used. Now, again, all words are made up, I understand that, but this one had only been made up for five years, and it was not a word that was particularly well-defined or particularly well-understood by most speakers of Te Reo Māori. And the very simple reason for that is that it was effectively an English word that had been shoehorned into Te Reo Māori, although that's not obvious from looking at it to begin with. I wonder, if you don't know what the word kawanatanga means, I wonder if you can maybe guess which word it comes from in English. And to help you figure this out, I'll tell you a couple of things about Te Reo Māori and its alphabet. The Māori alphabet only has 15 letters, and two of them, two of these letters are digraphs, or two letters put together. English has digraphs as well, but they're not in the actual alphabet. It's stuff like T-H-C-H-N-G, right? So two letters put together that make a certain sound. Anyway, the Māori alph- alphabet, it lacks certain letters from the Latin alphabet, only having 15 letters. And amongst the letters that it lacks are the letters V and G. You will see the letter G in some Māori words, but only ever with an N in front of it. That's one of the the Māori digraphs. Mm. Uh, G never appears on its own, making the G sound. Nor does the letter V appear, making the V sound. So when you look at a word like kawanatanga, knowing that G and V aren't available in Te Reo Māori, can you guess which English word kawanatanga comes from? Kawanatanga is the Te Reo Māori word that means governorship. Kawana means governor. There's no G, there's no V, so we use K and W instead. Governor becomes kawana. And tanga is a, a, a Māori suffix. It's, it means ship, not like ship on the ocean, but like the English suffix ship, you know, friendship, horsemanship, dictatorship. So kawanatanga means governorship which is what the British said the Māori were ceding to them under the Te Reo Māori Treaty of Waitangi. In the English version, however, the word used in place of kawanatanga, governorship, was sovereignty. So in the English version, the Māori are ceding sovereignty, while in the Te Reo Māori version, they're ceding kawanatanga, which means... Well, honestly, who knows what it means? The word is five years old, something along the lines of governorship or governance. It's definitely not understood to mean sovereignty, whatever the case. So, the rangatira who read this treaty in Te Reo Māori, they were assured that they would, ma- that they would maintain their well-understood concept of tino rangatiratanga, self-government, chiefly authority, while ceding the loosely defined 
Kawanatanga. But in English, it's a very different story. The Maori chiefs are keeping, quote, the full, exclusive, and undisturbed possession of their lands while ceding, quote, absolutely and without reservation all the rights and powers of sovereignty. So in one version, you've got Kawanatanga, whatever that is, while in the other, all the rights and powers of sovereignty. So even a vague and flexible translation of both Tinorangatiratanga and Kawanatanga results in the Māori version of the Treaty of Waitangi having a pretty obvious contradiction. The Māori are ceding Kawanatanga, governorship, while retaining Tinurangatiratanga, chiefly authority or self-government. And this just doesn't make a lot of sense. You're ceding governorship, but but retaining self-government? That uh, it, What it means is that the treaty essentially is entirely dependent on how these two phrases are interpreted by the reader. And that's a very difficult thing to do consistently, especially when one of these words, kawanatanga, is five years old and isn't, isn't thoroughly understood by people who have been speaking te reo Māori for centuries. So these key differences in the way that the treaty is presented in its two languages and the contradiction that they seem to create, this has caused innumerable and endless issues in Aotearoa New Zealand for almost two Hundred years. In fact, in today's world, plenty of scholars argue that the Treaty of Waitangi isn't one document, but in fact, it's two documents, completely separate and completely legally distinct documents. So important and so enormous are the differences between them. So, to come back to why these differences exist, we've talked about what they are. Now, let's talk about why they exist. We can talk about how it was difficult to translate certain words from English to Te Reo Māori. But it's also important to note here that it was difficult to translate not only words, but concepts from one culture to another. Land, to the British, was a commodity. You can buy it, you can sell it. Sovereignty over this land can change hands by hook or by crook, by the pen or the sword. The Māori had no such frame of reference and couldn't even think along those lines when the treaty was presented to them. To them, ceding sovereignty was... Impossible. It's not, not just impossible, inconceivable. It's, not, it's just not something that you could do. And I'm not being patronising here. I'm not belittling the understanding of these rangatira who were asked to sign the treaty. Noted Māori legal experts like Moana Jackson have pointed out that Moana Jackson himself, right, he said, quote, ceding mana or sovereignty in a treaty was legally and culturally incomprehensible in Māori terms. So the Williamses, they're not just having trouble literally translating words, but also couldn't really find a way to articulate in Te Reo Māori a concept that was so alien to its readers that it couldn't possibly be expressed in their language. Think about it this way, right? Think about it from a, from a different angle. This may, this may help to sort of illuminate what's going on here. Imagine you had to write a, uh, I don't know, a design document or an instruction manual or, or some piece of, of, of deeply technical writing uh, for a, uh, a a nuclear reactor, right? But imagine you had to do this not in the modern English of the 21st century, but Middle English from the medieval era. Now, you might be able to get some of the way there. You might be able to explain some of the basic concepts, but Middle English as a language just isn't equipped to explain the intricacies of nuclear physics, Right. And so it is with Te Reo Māori grappling with a topic or a subject or a concept like 
ceding sovereignty. This isn't even really something that can be expressed in the framework of te reo Māori because it's not a concept that existed within the culture of the people who spoke this language. Now, on top of this, right, there are all sorts of other translation issues with certain words and phrases that continue to cause legal issues, even today in the 21st century in the politics of Aotearoa. The, the translation from English to, to Te Reo Māori was necessarily very messy just because of the differences between the two languages. But there is even more to it than that, if you'll believe it, right? And it comes back to, on a very personal level, the Williamses, and specifically the elder Williams, Henry. It is thought, it is not proven, but it is thought that Williams had an agenda of his own in translating the Treaty of Waitangi in the way that he did, or even multiple agendas, perhaps. Given how both versions of the treaty seem to favour the people that speak the language in, in which it's written, right? The, the English version is better for the British, the Te Reo Māori version is better for the Māori. It is suspected that Williams was actively attempting to make the treaty as palatable and as attractive as possible to whomever was reading and signing their respective version. Williams was known to have opposed the New Zealand Company and their efforts at colonising Aotearoa, and he was known to want the treaty signed and over with as swiftly as possible. So he wanted this deal done. He wanted this treaty to be attractive for people to sign, and that may have influenced the way that he translated it. Now, why did he want the treaty signed and over and done with? Well, here's where it gets really interesting. Williams had himself bought a lot, a lot of land off the Māori. And he was worried that if the British didn't come in and officially approve and sanction these purchases, he might lose the land that he now owned. Because imagine if the New Zealand company came in, took over authority across New Zealand and declared former land purchases null and void, that'd be it for him. Imagine if the French came along, seized power and kicked out all the British settlers from Aotearoa altogether. No, no. This wouldn't do for Williams. He needed the Treaty of Waitangi signed for his own personal interests, allegedly, which, which, if true, casts a whole new light on the way that it was translated. In any case, that is how the treaty, or treaties alternatively, was or were written. On the 5th of February 1840, the Williamses emerged bleary-eyed after their all-nighter, with the translation ready to be presented to the Rangatira and signed. Rangatira had assembled in a place called Waitangi and had the treaty read to them on the morning of the 5th of February, both in English and then in Te Reo Māori. And then, after these readings, debate began. For hours and hours, for the rest of the day, the Rangatira debated the treaty with some arguing in favour of it. They pointed out the benefits of British protection. They pointed out the benefits of them keeping the mistrusted French out, the the regulation and the management of the Pakia, the, the, the fact that the British could help uh, Aotearoa navigate its foreign affairs. It'd be useful to have such a powerful empire at their backs. And then on top of that, the Rangatira, who had converted to Anglicanism, they supported the treaty due to the biblical allegories that missionaries like Williams, Williams drew in presenting it to them. The treaty was an agreement between the Māori and, and Queen Victoria, who, don't forget, was the head of the Anglican Church. So in that way, there was a, a lure to the newly Christianised Māori. It was, it was like one of the covenants struck in the Bible itself. Some also argued that it was too late to change the future of Aotearoa and that the Pākehā were here and they were not going anywhere, and so cooperation and a united future was the best path forward, and that path would best be trodden 
with them coming together and agreeing to sign this treaty. However, there were also those rangatira that opposed the treaty in very strong terms, pointing out the racism and the mistreatment they suffered at the hands of the Pākehā who were there already, how they were being lied to and cheated of their land and with little hope that any of this would get better in the future. And then on top of this, there were some rangatira that didn't want anything to do with giving up kawanatanga. Whatever that meant, they refused to budge an inch in surrendering their sovereignty or their authority. However, it seemed that Hobson and Williams and all the rest of the British in support of the treaty were going to get what they wanted. As the rangatira debated into the night, it became clear that a majority of them were in favour of it. Perhaps they believed what Williams, a missionary who seemed to have been in good standing and had the respect of many of the rangatira, perhaps they believed what he told them after he read it to them in Te Reo Māori. He said, <clears throat> This is Queen Victoria's act of love to you. She wants to ensure you that you keep what is yours, your property, your rights and privileges, and those things you value. Who knows when a foreign power, perhaps the French, might try to take this country. The treaty is really like a fortress to you. The next day, on the 6th of February, 45 of the rangatira were ready to sign. Enough for Hobson to bring the signing date forward by a date. He'd been planning on doing it on the 7th, but the iron was hot, so he might as well strike. In fact, the ceremony was so rushed that Hobson didn't have the chance to get dressed up in his fancy naval uniform, and despite what illustrations of the signing may make you think, he turned up wearing, by some accounts, nothing more than a dressing gown as the treaty was signed. Whatever the case, these rangatira, they lined up to sign the Treaty of Waitangi, and as they did, Hobson said to each and every one of them, Hi iwi tahi tato, now we are one. And so, the 6th of February is remembered as Waitangi Day, the day on which the treaty was first signed, a document and a day now considered to mark the founding of the nation of New Zealand. Where there was still a lot more signing to do, in the coming weeks and months, copies of the treaty were distributed to other rangatira across the North Island, not the South Island, which we'll come to in a minute, and hundreds and hundreds of these rangatira added their signatures to this document. Now, how much understanding these rangatira had of what the treaty actually meant for them is highly debatable between the translation issues, the way that the treaty was sold to them, and then on top of that, the pressure put on them by the British to sign. But all the, all the same, they signed by the hundred, In some of them signing in letters that we'd recognise from the Latin alphabet, some of them by drawing their moku, the, their facial tattoos, and some of, them, some of them by simply putting down an X. In total, around 570 or 580 rangatira in all signed it. But only 39 of those Māori signatures appeared on the English version of the treaty. The rest were on copies written in Te Reo Māori, muddying the waters even further when it comes to the treaty's legitimacy. But with hundreds of signatures collected, on the 21st of May 1840, Hobson declared British sovereignty over Aotearoa New Zealand as a whole over both the North and the South Islands, the North by right of treaty, and the South by right of discovery. And at this point, you might be thinking that the British actually conducted themselves a little better here than they had in dealing with other Indigenous peoples around the world. And that is true to a point. The Treaty of Waitangi was the first time in history that the British Empire signed a treaty with an Indigenous population that offered them the rights and protections that came with being British subjects. But when we start to talk about how Hobson presented the treaty once signed to his British bosses, well, it becomes a very different story. And you can see that the British were 
they were up to their old tricks once again. Hobson wrote back to London in the wake of of his Declaration of Sovereignty, triumphantly claiming that sovereignty of the North Island had been handed over to the British with, quote, unanimous adherence. And this was, to put it mildly, not true at all. Many Dungatira had indeed signed, yes, true, but not all of them, not even close to all of them. There, there were many iwi that wanted nothing to do with the treaty and didn't cede sovereignty in any fashion whatsoever. And secondly, Hobson also told his British masters how the South Island now belonged to Britain by right of discovery. So we're really not going to give the British too much credit in, in their treating with the Māori because even when it comes to the unusually collaborative Treaty of Waitangi, the imperialist nonsense wasn't lurking too far beneath the surface. Hobson didn't consider there to be a need to treat with the people of the South Island due to their, quote, uncivilised state, and so fell back on the British discovering the South Island as a way to assert their authority over it. Never mind that it had been discovered for hundreds of years by the Tangata Whenua that had first settled it, but, you know, whatever, doesn't count. They didn't even have a flag, did they? Hobson also misreported the number of signatures that had been added to all the copies that had been sent around for Māori to sign, and he didn't mention anything about the differences between the English and the Tiri Māori versions. But then again... He had every reason to get this business over and done with. Around this time in May, the New Zealand company were making noise again, attempting to claim their own version of sovereignty. So Hobson needed the Treaty of Waitangi business wrapped up and finalised once and for all to end the question of New Zealand's sovereignty. So he sent his triumphant and misleading message back to the British authorities who, in October, were pleased to officially confirm Hobson's declaration of sovereignty and now considered New Zealand to be a legitimised part of the British Empire. However, as you might already know, or perhaps have guessed, the treaty did not have its intended effect for either the British or the Māori. And before long, the issues created by the treaty, the concepts and provisions it contained, and all of its mistranslations and differences, led to a long series of devastating conflicts between the Māori and the British. These conflicts have gone by many different names over the years. In English, the Māori Wars or the Land Wars, while in uh, Te Reo Māori, they were called Nyapakanga Ao Aotearoa, the, the, the Great Aotearoa Wars, or Tiriri Pakia, the White Man's Anger. Today, however, we refer to these conflicts as the New Zealand Wars, and they lasted for three decades, into the 1870s, causing the deaths of thousands as the British deployed troops to Aotearoa to fight the Māori who resisted both British sovereignty and the continued sale of of Māori lands. The British won, they heavily punished the Māori who had resisted, and they confiscated huge amounts of Māori land without compensation, selling this land to pay for the war itself. And there, look, there were other factors that contributed to the outbreak of the, of the New Zealand wars. It wasn't just arising from land disputes, but also the political tensions between Māori and Pākehā, uh, their increasingly obvious economic disparities, the changes that Māori were experiencing to their way, way of life, the increasing Pākehā presence in Aotearoa altogether. But central to the conflict between the British and the Māori in the years between the 1840s and the 1870s was the Treaty of Waitangi and the problems that came with it. And The New Zealand wars were just the biggest, more or less, immediate consequences of the treaty. There were and are so, so, so many other consequences brought about by the Treaty of Waitangi felt both back then and today, coming up on two centuries later. With the British now considering their sovereignty over New Zealand to be fully confirmed, 
the British colonisation of Aotearoa sped up, sped up like never before, hastened by the efforts of the New Zealand Company, who adapted their plans for privatised colonisation to account for British sovereignty. Huge amounts of land was sold by Māori to Pakia, but never really on particularly equitable or just terms, leading to the continued systematic disempowerment and disenfranchisement of the Māori people, and this was felt particularly keenly when New Zealand was granted self-government and established voting systems based on land ownership. Not only had the Māori sold off their land, but in time, their stake in the government that the British went on to set up. And even those Māori who did still own land were excluded from political engagement due to the communal nature of Māori land ownership, in addition, of course, to just good old-fashioned racism. Māori soon became a minority in Aotearoa as more and more Pākehā arrived and settled there. And before long, the rights that had been guaranteed to the Māori by the Treaty of Waitangi were being compromised, trampled upon, and then just ignored altogether. And this was one of the many things that fueled the deadly New Zealand wars. But quite aside from the military implications of the treaty, there were also vast social and cultural consequences as well. Speaking as an outsider, as a, as a non-Kiwi, a neighbour across the Tasman, as, as someone who is also from a nation that also has a colonial history filled with the infamous treatment of Indigenous people, I, I will say I, I look on Aotearoa New Zealand with a huge amount of respect given the measures that Kiwis seem to take to promote and protect the role of Māori in the modern era. That's what it seems like to me again as uh, as an outside observer it's it's the little things it's the the common kiwi use of te reo maori phrases and words but it's also it's also the big things like specific maori electorates in the new zealand parliament seats reserved for maori parliamentarians so their political enfranchisement and representation is guaranteed over here, we couldn't even give our Indigenous people a guaranteed seat at the table, let alone a seat in Parliament. As an Australian, I look at Aotearoa, and, and in comparison to my country at least, I think that the Kiwis have, have gotten a lot right when it comes to Indigenous affairs. But then again, that bar is not a high one to clear, given how fraught most post-colonial nations like Australia are with deeply ingrained, centuries-old issues of the exploitation, oppression and murder of Indigenous people. So as an outsider looking in, it's easy to look at the culture and the politics of, of, of modern-day Aotearoa New Zealand and think, well, they've done a pretty good job, all things considered, in navigating a treacherous colonial past and promoting and protecting the rights and roles of Māori in Kiwi society. But... The more that I learn about Kiwi society, the more that I learn about how complex and troubled things are even today and how Aotearoa New Zealand still struggles with its colonial past, just like Australia does, and especially how it struggles with the social and cultural impact of the Treaty of Waitangi, it's, it's very easy to identify consequences like the New Zealand wars. Men fought and died, bodies were counted, memorials were built, but it's the quiet and near-invisible consequences of the Treaty of Waitangi that run much deeper. We don't, have a, we don't have time for a full breakdown of the pernicious effects of colonialism on modern Indigenous populations. We'd be here for hours. But I'll tell you this. It is no accident that Māori today are poorer and less educated than Pākehā. They are less likely to find employment, they are more likely to be found in prison, they are less likely to have proper access to healthcare, the list goes on. This mirrors the indigenous populations of more or less every post-colonial nation on earth, especially those linked to the British, Australia, 
Canada, the US, South Africa, and at the end of the day, Aotearoa New Zealand. The Treaty of Waitangi was a rushed, ill-considered, destructive, and dishonest document, and while it is not as if Kiwis wouldn't face the post-colonial issues they do now without it, Australians face the same issues, worse issues, and we never had a treaty, the treaty did nothing to aid the people that it was being sold to as a legal fortress. Some Kiwis listening to this might might be feeling a little indignant at this point, and honestly, I don't blame you, right? Some outsider coming in and, and telling you your business, especially an Australian, right? What right does the no-voting nation of Australia have to lecture Aotearoa New Zealand? It's fair, fair criticism through and through. Criticism I can't answer. I come from a country with deeply ingrained issues that we are even less ready to work through and address than, than you Kiwis seem to be. But I know that there are Kiwis out there who do not and will not open their eyes to the historical realities of their country's past, just as there are in Australia. There are Pakia who are sick of those whinging bloody Maoris, all the handouts they get, the special treatment, and they're still not happy. Well, I don't think you would be either if someone came into your home, tricked you into signing a document that would scam you and your descendants out of what was yours, your land, your taonga, your place on this earth. I don't want to lecture you. I, I, I don't. But it is time for the beneficiaries of imperialism everywhere to, at the very, very least, think about and recognize that past injustice has benefited us just as it has oppressed others. We may never have willingly or deliberately oppressed anyone. We may resent the accusation that we're at fault or bear responsibility. But the fact of the matter is, we, white Australians, Parkia, the descendants of European colonists and settlers everywhere, we have a much better deal than our Indigenous compatriots because of things like the Treaty of Waitangi, and therefore we also have a responsibility to acknowledge and recognise and address the wrongs of the past so our nations can move forward towards a better and a brighter and a more honest future together. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Treaty of Waitangi. Uh, it's been a long time coming, this episode. Uh, I've been reading about and, and researching this topic for quite a long time. I hope hope you did a decent enough job. My apologies once again if I've uh, said anything that, uh, that that's rubbed you the wrong way. I do want to hear from you if that's the case. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm very ready to accept feedback that's, uh, that's, that's meant and criticism that's meant in good faith. So, so do get in touch. Um, but... Uh, I hope, I've, uh, I hope I've done a good enough job. I know that uh, over in Aotearoa, New Zealand, uh, you know, the, 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 there's a focus on the Treaty of Waitangi this time of year, around Waitangi Day. So um, I hope the people who are listening to this for the first time um, get something out of it. I hope it was, uh, I hope it was a, a reasonable representation of, uh, of a nation that I'm really enjoying learning more about. Um, I think that Australia and, and Aotearoa and New Zealand only, only benefit when we learn more about each other. And obviously, well, there's always going to be the teasing and the mockery because, you know, how can there not be with the accents that you have? But honestly, it it, it is, it quite sincerely, it is a nice thing to, to learn more about a nation with, with whom we have so much in common. And um, I, 
Yeah, without any irony, I uh, thank you very much to all of the the Kiwi listeners who who tune in every week. Um, it, uh, it it means a lot to me that that Kiwis write in and and request, you know, topics from their history. They're asking this idiot Australian, you know, in 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 sunny Queensland to to talk about their history. And I I hope I've done this in a way that is um that's respectful and and worthy and and useful to you. So. I do want to very quickly thank the the Kiwis that that listen, and also the, again very specifically the Kiwis that write in: Constantine Gorney, Jack Lord, Hannah, Andre Delamar, Ben Salisbury, Neil Richardson, Forrest Axford, Jeru B, Cameron McLaren, uh, Jasper Pickering, Ethan, Brent Roloff, Taylor Newen, Graham Waterman, Sean Hudson, Greg Wilson, uh, Samantha Jury, and Sam Whitehead from last week, wanting uh, a bit of multi history. Alex Jansen once again, Matt Dingle, and uh, Greg Wilson writing in uh, to specifically request the Treaty of Waitangi. And, of course, last, but actually most here, Jordan Coxhead. Could have done it without you. Glad I didn't have to. Thank you for listening, one and all, whether you're a Kiwi or from some other part of the world. Back next week with uh, with uh, probably something that's a little bit closer to the usual nonsense you that's, uh, that's served up on this podcast week in and week out. Quick reminder, of course, patreon.com slash sister if you want to support the show. Um, the merch shop that you can uh, you can use the the link on the website halfhousehistory.net to uh, to peruse through and of course the contact form if you want to get in touch feedback uh, topic suggestions whatever else is on your mind halfhousehistory.net use the contact form there that's the best way to get in touch with me tell your friends tell your enemies tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent and I'll see you again next week as we get stuck stuck into another episode but until then as ever leaving you with a question posed on reddit this one comes to us from redditor shotgun toothpaste who asks how do the strong and the weak nuclear forces work in a nuclear free country like New Zealand